Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today we continue our look at the U.S. Digital Service and how they're helping modernize agency legacy systems. My guest is John Sullivan, a digital services expert at the U.S. Digital Service, working on the quality payment program for the Department of Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for taking the time. Obviously, you guys are one of the many programs in the U.S. Digital Services report to Congress that was highlighted. So let's just start at the beginning. You work at the HHS Quality Payment Program. Talk a little bit about what that program is and what was the work you guys have done to improve that program and modernize that program over the last year or so. So the Quality Payment Program is the centerpiece of Medicare's transition from reimbursing providers for the quantity of care they provide to reimbursing them based on the quality of the care they provide. So it's a new program stemming from the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015, better known as MACRA. And the U.S. Digital Service has spent about two years working with our federal colleagues at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as well as vendor partners, to demonstrate the difference that agile procurement and software development human-centered design, and product management can make in delivering complex software to the market in less time, at lower cost, and with higher quality than you traditionally find with government IT projects. So in 2017, we worked together to hire multiple development teams, then coordinate their efforts to build and to deliver to market a modern, scalable, user-friendly system that can be used for the quality payment program. The effort around the modern user-friendly system, talk a little bit about what that system is. Is it for healthcare providers that they would log in and use it? Or is it the back end for the CMS folks to, to look at what the bills, for instance, when they get sent in from the healthcare providers? Talk a little bit more how the system works. The system is largely clinician-facing. So it's designed to be used by healthcare providers like doctors, nurses, and this system allows them to report to CMS data about the quality of the care that they're providing for their patients, their Medicare patients. In some cases, that data is reported by a clinician themselves if they're a very small practice, or it might be reported by someone who's on their staff. And for a larger health system, there might be a number of people on the staff that aggregate together all of the data for the various clinicians that are part of that health system. So it's designed to be used by these folks to do data quality reporting. So we built a nice user interface that takes them through a step-by-step -step process uh, with guided questions and answers. The analogy that we like to use is the TurboTax analogy. Many people have used TurboTax or another type of software like that to report their taxes, and it's a similar type of interrogatory format for presenting questions and having people give responses back. And they can go through it in a stepwise fashion. They can take breaks and come back to it. It gives them a lot of flexibility to do their reporting at their convenience, but also helps them do it and get better results. There is a benefit for the staff uh, at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in that we're aggregating this data 
and putting it into a system that makes it a lot easier for them to retrieve the data to do the processing that they have to do on their side. So let me start with the, the front end users because coming up with an approach to measure quality instead of just measuring quantity, that's tough. And I know that that's not your job to come up with necessarily those metrics, but you got to take those metrics that CMS gives you and put them in a set of questions and set of yeah. ways to answer them. Talk a little bit about that process, because I know a lot of times when I talk to the digital services folks, they'll talk about meeting with the stakeholders, but wow, there's a lot of stakeholders for Medicare. One of our principal focuses for this program was to do what we call human-centered design. And Every aspect of the development of the software platform was informed by user research and user feedback starting at the very beginning. Before we even wrote any code, we started doing research with users. And we, we identified a bunch of different stakeholder groups that we would want to talk to that would give us a more complete picture of the different needs that people would have. So if you're a clinician who has a, rural, a small rural practice and you might be doing the reporting yourself, you might have one set of needs. If you're a staff person for a group practice that reports on behalf of multiple physicians, then you might have a different set of needs. And so we really tried to make sure that we were having face time with each one of these different types of users and not just at one point in time, but at multiple points in time along the way. So doing that upfront research to understand needs, then showing them things that we were developing along the way to continuously get feedback that would inform the work that we did. How difficult was it to meet both their needs? Because you can imagine somebody who puts in one patient a day or two patients a day versus someone putting in 30 or 50 or 100 patients a day. That just seems like when you look at the spectrum of needs, it could be very, very different. That's true. One factor that makes this problem space a little less complex is that everyone's reporting in the aggregate. So if you're a large practice, the difference is the number of clinicians whose data you're reporting versus the number of total patients. And yeah, so it does drive different needs for those different audiences. At the end of the day, you're still talking about the same kind of data. So Providing ways for those groups to report that's efficient for them is key, but they're all essentially performing the same activity. So in the case of larger organizations, we just provide a way for them to submit more data at one time in more of a rolled-up fashion. There's also another type of reporting that's specifically designed for very large practices, and that was another stakeholder group that we spent time working with. But the way that they report is a little different because their groups are so large. It turned out to be a challenge that we could meet in a way that served all these different audience types. Talk a little bit about the user-centered design piece, because obviously that's a theme I hear time and again from people in the digital services who are, who are doing this type of work. And in fact, I hear it more and more from people who are not, quote-unquote, digital services experts. Uh, talk a little about how you did that, because again, it's tens of thousands, if not millions of people you're trying to meet their needs of. Did you guys have focus groups? Did you have specific meetings that, or, or some kind of board of of users that you went to? The first part of the process is to try to identify representative different user types that you can build communities around. So in our case, we identified various types of users who would use this system who would be representative of a set of needs that, that a user might have. 
then we would put together feed thought focus groups that we would go and interview. And we wouldn't just go to talk to them one time. We would talk to them multiple times and show them things we were developing along the way. That gives us a chance to ask questions, hear what they're telling us, turn that feedback into something that they can respond to, show them that artifact, have them respond to it, and then continue to iteratively develop from there on. And by having this different set of user stakeholder representative groups, we could iteratively go back to them and show them the progress that we were making and tune the work that we were doing so that we were staying on track, continuing to be focused on their needs. How do you make that prioritization? How do you do those trade-offs? It comes down to a couple of different things. One is you have to look at the level of effort that it's going to take to implement any one particular feature. And it's not just the building of it, but when you put this thing in, is it going to add complexity to the product overall that might have a some sort of consequence in terms of now it's more difficult to test or maintain? Uh, now, because I added this additional feature, I've made the overall experience a little more complicated. So that could have a detrimental effect for other users. So that's one of the things you have to take into account. The other course is just the time and effort involved. Do you have enough resources available uh, in the time window that you have available to deliver that feature? And since we're in the very first year of developing this platform, a uh, brand new platform, it's a little easier actually in some ways to make those trade-offs because you're limited on the amount of time that you have and your first priority, you're, you're really your driving priority is to deliver the minimum functionality needed to enable people to use this uh, product for year one of the program. And so the year first year, you can make those kinds of like really ruthless prioritizations more easily. It's when you get into the second and beyond years of a program where you don't quite have the, the same deadline-driven pressure that you might have in that first year think can get more challenging. But at the end of the day, you have to really think about, is this something that is going to benefit the product overall, or is it going to create more complexity and potentially uh, more cost down the road? That outweighs whatever benefit you're going to get out of it. Now, remind me, you guys were doing sprints on this. Was it two-week sprint? Was it six-week sprints? It all depends on the functionality. So we standardized on two-week sprints from the get-go. We found that was a good pace to go at in terms of giving the development teams enough time to make some, like a significant amount of progress that you could then circle back to and look at and say, all right, are we still on track? Are we still going in the right direction? Two weeks turned out to be a good cadence for us. We also did another layer of planning on top of that where we would say over a six-week horizon, what are the things that we want to be able to accomplish? And that's what we call program increment planning. And being able to plan at that level as well gives you a little bit more lead time to think about, all right, what are our program goals that we want to achieve over this period of time? And what are the priorities over this period of time? So in the next six weeks, what's the most important things for us to deliver? And being able to do a little bit more long-term planning ensures that your sprints are always going to be building up to something 
that is going to make significant progress over time. Because if you're just thinking two weeks at a time, it, it's very short-range thinking. It's just harder to build up to a an intentional set of larger goals if you only think about things at, at two-week cycles. And even six weeks doesn't seem that long. I mean, maybe it feels that way for developers, but it feels six weeks is, is only a month and a half, and, and it feels like how much long-term planning can you do? Give me a sense of when you presented the new functionality every couple of weeks to the user groups, mostly were they, was it on target? Did you have to go back several times and, and fix things? Give me a sense of, of the reaction from this user group to, to, the, to the progress you guys were making. The two-week cycles turned out to be a good cadence because it would give the development teams enough time to make enough material changes that there was something to look at. Occasionally, we would not do a review with a stakeholder group after two weeks because, for whatever reason, maybe that particular sprint was more heavy on bug fixes or something that was maybe less um, outwardly apparent. But generally, the two-week cycle worked out well because the other thing about it is that when you're doing a sprint review, you don't want it to be something that takes like several hours to get through. It's better if it can be uh, you're seeing you're spending less time together, people are more focused, they get more of a sense of like, okay, I see something happening. In terms of the six-week program increments, you're right. That can there's no like we we go back and forth on this. I think the program for 2018 is actually going to shift to to a 12-week program increment and try that. Six weeks does sound like a short amount of time, but uh, what we realized is when you're talking about a year-long development, six weeks is a is relative to that year-long development cycle is a pretty good chunk of time, especially if you're doing Greenfields development. There's a lot that can change in six weeks, and so it's better to try to keep yourself limited to that six-week horizon. Maybe look out two program increments ahead to see where you're going. We had many of the teams that, that gradually moved to more like, okay, I knew what I'm doing the next six weeks, but I also have a sense for what I'm going to do the six weeks after that. But things can change a lot in six weeks when you're putting something together in one year, especially a software platform that's as complex as the one that we built for the quality payment program. So it seems short, but when you're in it, it can go by pretty quickly. But at the same time, a lot can change, and so you don't want to lock yourself in uh, to something that maybe is 12 weeks long where you could get four weeks in and find, oh, you know, we're really this one piece is turning out to be very different than we thought it was going to be, and it kind of messes up your whole program increment. So shorter gives you more time to react, make changes, and just tune your upcoming program increments. We have to take a break. My guest is Jonathan Sullivan, a digital services expert at the U.S. Digital Service, working on the quality payment program for the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. This week, we continue our look at how the U.S. Digital Service is helping agencies modernize federal IT. My guest is Jonathan Sullivan, a digital services expert at the U.S. Digital Service, working on the quality payment program for the Department of Health and Human Services. 
Jonathan, we've talked a lot about this, uh, the front end work. Let's just talk briefly about the back end. When, when you build something like this, it's modern technologies. Talk just a little bit, at, at maybe at a high level, the types of technologies you used and the approach you used from a technology perspective, meaning the languages, the databases, the cloud, of course. How did you put this system together? There was two fundamental guiding principles. One is that all of the that the platform was going to be hosted in the cloud. So everything we were going to be doing was going to be based on a cloud platform. The second was that we were going to do API-first development. So APIs are application programming interfaces, and this is a way of doing development that allows you to build a bunch of different functional components for software, which can work with each other in a flexible, scalable way, but also work with components potentially outside of your platform as well. And this is a fairly novel approach for CMS to take when developing a system like this. Not only was it novel in terms of starting out on the cloud and being 100% cloud-based, but also having it be an API-first type of development. So the entire platform is a series of APIs, and when we would build um, a user interface, we built that on top of these APIs. One of our API sets we actually released to the public and made it possible for them to use the API directly, and they could build their own software on top of this API. And that was also a very novel approach to take at CMS, and one that the market had been telling us that they were very interested in for a long time, uh, and that we were able to deliver this year, which really turned out to be delightful both for third-party developers, but also had a lot of benefits for CMS. So those are the two sort of guiding principles for us over the course of this development process. Those are the ways in which this was going to be a very different program than others that had come before it. Because as you put together the the user interface, the database itself, that information has to go somewhere. Does CMS had an existing database where that information had already lived? And But you had to set up the, those APIs would be beneficial for CMS to aggregate that information and, and do trends analysis and, and do a data analytics around it, or did that have to be done separately as well? We did build a new data store for this program, and part of the reason why we did that is because the quality payment program was replacing a bunch of previously existing similar programs. The point was to try to bring those all together into one coherent program, and as part of doing that, we also created one coherent data store for the data that was being collected around this program. However, one of the challenges that we faced is that we did have to pull in data from elsewhere in the organization, particularly in, around what we call eligibility. So information that helps us build up a profile of a user, understand who you are, are you a clinician, are you a staff member at a group, what kinds of reporting have you done in the past and are likely to want to do again? Uh, are you, in fact, actually eligible for this program? Are there any special circumstances that apply to you? All of that kind of information existed in various pockets around CMS. And we had to go out and identify, all right, where are the different pieces of information that we need in order to build a complete profile of a user? And then pull those pieces of data into our system so that they were locally accessible to us and able, we were able to use them to uh, make decisions about what to show a user in a user interface, how to guide them through the process of reporting. We felt it was very important that users of the system 
know that we know things about them and that we demonstrate what we know about them. As citizens, all of us have had an experience either dealing with a government or maybe a large corporate organization like an insurance company where you feel like you're telling them things of like, don't they already know this about me? Well, CMS knows a lot about physicians because it is taking claims from those physicians and paying those claims. So we felt it was important that we actually show people, yeah, like, you know, we know that you're a clinician who's in these practices and that we demonstrate that, yeah, we we know this information that you've given us in the past. We're not going to ask you for it again. Uh, we shouldn't need to do that. But that entailed us having to go out and find out where the various pockets of information were in the organization and try to pull them all together. Bigger technical challenge than building a database for this program. That leads me also down the path of security because one of the big deals with this is you're dealing with both personal information when you talk about quality of care, who's getting cared for. There's probably a lot of PII in that. Talk a little about the security and how you guys were probably, I'm just going to guess here, automation orchestration around the, the security of the APIs. I mean, security is found, it's just one of the most formative foundational aspects of this entire platform. You're right, we are dealing with, in some cases, patient-level data. In other cases, we're dealing with clinician-level data, but it's PI. It's stuff that we have to protect. And so building in the right kind of technology that would help us keep control of security was important, but just as important was building a culture around protecting private information. And it's not that people don't understand that it's important to do this, but when you have this many people all working together to develop software and they're in different physical locations, they're from different contracting organizations, they're working on different pieces of what's going to be an integrated software platform it's possible to make choices in a vacuum that you think are very solid, but actually turn out to have security consequences. And so it's very important, we felt, to instantiate this culture of think more broadly than just the code that you're writing. Think about security more broadly. How is your, the security of the thing that you're building going to affect the security of other people's work? And really get down to the individual program programmer level to say, you always need to be thinking about security. Every person on this program is accountable for thinking about the security of the code that they write. So that's part of it. Having, of course, the right sort of sound technical disciplines in place is also good. But then being able to also audit yourself to say, are we hitting our targets in terms of how secure the software needs to be. And there's a certain amount of that you want to do internally, but at the end of the day, you also want to bring in a third party to take a look at it. If you think about it as like a, if you're a, a writer, right, you have an editor that checks your work, somebody who didn't author the work who can bring that outside perspective to it. So we did that with security, and we had an outside firm coming in and looking at it and testing it to make sure that we are achieving our security goals. I will certainly say that at the end of working on this for the past year plus, security is it's hard. It's a genuinely challenging thing to do. I have a lot more sympathy 
uh, for the various things that you read about in the newspaper. Not all of them. It's clearly a lot of them are very avoidable. But uh, at the same time, there's a lot to it, and you really have to give it the right amount of attention and focus. And that's certainly something that we've endeavored to do over the past year. Now, it's interesting. You talk about this idea of a third party coming in, but did you guys also have some automated checks? Because there's some probably basic cyber hygiene compliance issues that to put new software out every two weeks, you can't wait for somebody to go through the software and check it. So you, you have to have some automation in there, right? Yes, that's that's definitely the case. And what you find as you go along, you learn about the kinds of things that can go wrong in your software from a uh, security standpoint. And you take those learnings and you use that to further adjust your uh, automation, your technical tools, so that you're less likely to have those mistakes repeated. And so there's a it's interesting, you have sort of an iterative learning cycle that goes along with developing your software that helps you improve on your ability to make it secure over time. Jonathan, going forward in 2018, you mentioned uh, potentially moving to 12-week sprints. So let's let's back up. This quality payment program was launched when? Officially, you know, the first iteration was launched when? And then what what are your plans moving forward for into 2018 and, and beyond? The program launched on January 2nd, 2018. It's an annual program that has an annual life cycle. So every uh, year from January to March, participants in the program are reporting their data from the prior calendar year. And so each year there's rulemaking, there's changes to the program in terms of the kinds of measures that you can report, um, and those are changing on an annual cycle that's timed. And so part of our challenge is to deliver various milestones in concert with that business cycle, if you will, for quality reporting. So for 28, to, to deliver that initial launch on January 2nd, 2018, we did a lot of original development throughout uh, the second half of 2016 and then all the way through 2017 to deliver this to market on January 1st. But on January 1st, 2019, uh, the second year of the cycle will begin, and we'll have a new reporting window that opens then. And so between now and then, we'll have work to do to not only finish the software for year one, because year one will uh, not finish reporting out until, I want to say, July of this year. So finish the functionality for year one plus make the enhancements that we need for year two. And when you talk about year two enhancements, do you know what they are already? Or is it going to be depending on what Congress says, what the users say, maybe some of the challenges that were uh, needed to be overcome from year one changes? What's on your agenda, I guess, for 2018 into 2019? So for 2018, the what, what's on our roadmap is a combination of things that are driven by changes to the law and to rulemaking, but also self-driven changes. So I'll tackle the first ones. Uh, Congress did recently make legislative changes which impacted our program, and there will be some changes that we have to make to our platform that reflect what the new guidance from Congress. Uh, simultaneously with that, there's also annual rulemaking that goes on, and part of the process of annual rulemaking is to hear from the public about how the program is working for them 
and that's something that we certainly take into account. So there's, in addition to that, we're going to be looking at what can we do to further improve the user experience. We think that our baseline user experience is quite strong, but once the submission window closes here, we are going to be looking at analytics, plus going back and doing some additional user research to test our assumptions about was this experience really something that ended up saving clinicians time? If so, how much time was it saving them? How much better could we do? And we want to be looking at that as a way to improve the product for year two. In addition to that, we also want to expand our API to include a larger number of health IT companies, like electronic health record companies. Enabling them to use our API will further further decrease the amount of time and effort that clinicians have to put into doing reporting. So we think that's going to open up a lot of new areas. All right, Jonathan, this was a fascinating conversation. This is one of those programs where you sit back and go, hey, look, you got a blank sheet of paper and you guys seem to be going down the right track. We'll, we'll see in a couple months once those user experience uh, responses come back, but it, it sounds like you guys are, uh, uh, as I said, going down the right path. So uh, let me thank you for your time. Jonathan Sullivan is a digital service expert at the Department of Health and Human Services working on the quality payment program. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be with you. We have to take a break. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the show, we hear from the Agriculture Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, or APHIS, and how they're using geospatial tools to improve their mission success. My guests are Shannon Hamm, the Associate Deputy Administrator for Policy and Program Development, Lisa Kennaway, the National GIS Operations Manager for Plant Protection and Quarantine, Mary Jane McCoolai, the GIS Project Coordinator, and Bryson Weber, the GIS Coordinator for Wildlife Services. I caught up with them after they spoke at the recent ESRI conference in Washington. Let me start with Shannon. GIS is having a huge impact in terms of how APHIS meets its mission. So l let me talk from the broad perspective first. GIS is not new technology, but what's becoming new is the depth and, and really the, the types of tools around it. So maybe just talk a little bit about, just broadly about the impact of GIS on, on APHIS's mission. Basically, we're looking to collaborate more across the agency, sharing scarce resources of data and technology so that we can do a better job of responding to public and meeting our mission of ridding the country of pests and diseases. So the use of GIS is something you guys have been using for quite a while. What's the biggest difference that you're seeing today than maybe a year ago, five years ago, or more? Collaboration. And when you talk about collaboration, is it just uh, Lisa's working with Mary Jane, or what? It's that plus the fact that we now have one place where all of our authoritative data resides, and we reduce on duplications, data error, and redundancy, which is duplication. So, and, and really that's been the key to really GIS data. So why collect the same data three or four times? It's both money saving, but it's also there's an efficiency side, an effectiveness side. So everyone's working from the same sheet of paper. What type of impact are you seeing on the Avis mission by having this better, closer collaboration? Well, we're still new and the new stages of our web GIS portal but clearly we believe that with these type of tools and the collaboration, we'll be able to share our science with policymakers and make more data-driven decisions uh, for the public 
and obviously policymakers, because we'll be collaborating and using that authoritative data collectively. Maybe give me a little bit of background about the WebGIS portal in terms of when was it developed, who developed it, why was it developed. These portals seem to kind of come up when I talk to CIOs all the time, and then sometimes they get built, sometimes they don't. How did you guys end up developing this portal? We have a senior leaders group at APHIS that allows all the programs to come together and talk about overarching and multi-program problems and projects. And all the programs, all the main programs use GIS, but they all use it in their own domains, in their own servers, uh, their own licenses. And so push to go to enterprise level licensing and just enterprise level everything really made the cloud look like something that would be uh, appealing to the agency. Uh, and it kind of reduced the risk of for the programs thinking we were taking things away from them. But it's still fairly new, and so we're still feeling our way through it. We've set up a governance board, and we regularly meet. But it should be a very easy place on our portal where you have dashboards and uh, information readily available for both GIS practitioners and policymakers in the agency. And that was actually my next question. Is this available to people outside of USDA, APHIS, or is this just for APHIS, the internal folks? The portal we set up right now is just available for our own staff. However, through our legislative and public affairs unit, we have our uh, web page, and we can post uh, GIS story maps and other information that the public would benefit from. Like, for example, the story map we did on the screwworm outbreak in 2016 on the endangered Florida key deer. And that's actually a great segue to the folks you have with you. Let me turn to Lisa to start. Lisa works in, in one of the program areas. Uh, remind us again, uh, Lisa, where, which program area, and, and then talk a little about how you guys are using GIS data. I work for Plant Protection and Quarantine within USDA APHIS, and we are excited about WebGIS in the portal because it's allowing us to bring all of our pieces together, our mobile field data collection that we're out on boots on the ground collecting data, bringing that in using the portal to bring that into our centralized framework where we can have everything standardized and consistent that then feeds into all of our other projects that that information is really the foundation for our decision making and so we use that data to feed into other risk analyses other communication and visualization products and it all works together holistically and it's a new way of doing business because historically we had pieces of data in different silos, different offices, different personnel, and being able to put this all within the portal is really streamlining it and making it much easier to have smart decisions made from our data. And you bring up the fact that there's people in the field who are working, who are doing these tests, who are collecting the data, and they're feeding that data back. Previously, was, it, was that data maybe held by each office or each bureau, and then APHIS, the big APHIS didn't necessarily get that access to that data so easily, and now this is making access to the data, that's the big difference as well as the access to the data. Yes, that is correct. I mean, historically, we would often have pieces of data at each state-level office, and we have, a few years ago, started to think about more of a centralized database structure, and we were moving that way but still struggling, and it wasn't until the portal or WebGIS came about that we found a really good solution to meet our needs. And what's the reaction from people you work with? Are they amazed the fact that they have not just the data but then the tools on top of the data as well? Yes, they're very excited, um, especially 
a lot of our program managers that really have been struggling to get their hands at or any kind of geospatial information. Um, it's never been as easily available as it is now. And so we see moving forward with many of our programs developing dashboards, web maps, story maps, and those kind of things where they can monitor the data and the information in their programs to help them do their job better. You mentioned the importance of the data to drive decision making. Is there, I know it's only been about a year since the WebGIS portal was launched, but was there any anything that comes to mind as, as maybe an anecdote or an example of where hey, because of this data, we could do this better. Sure, I can think of one example. So um, we have an effort within plan protection and quarantine to standardize, centralize, and post to the portal uh, and the public web quarantine data layers for all of our pest programs. And that data is meant for public consumption as well as internal government. And we've never had an opportunity to have a real-time, updated, interactive representation of those quarantine data layers that are so important for decision making both at the federal, state, and local level. Let me turn to Mary Jane because you guys have seemed to have a very similar experience as Lisa when you guys are looking at bird flu in terms of being able to track it and understand where it's happening and, and how to deal with it. Talk about what you do with GIS and how it affects your mission. Similar to what Lisa said, we are seeing a, an improvement in our business processes by using the portal. So it's helped us respond to outbreaks, prepare for outbreaks, um, do analytics to identify areas where we need to target our resources. And I would say overall, it's a, um, improving our business processes and helping us respond quickly to emergencies. So the example you gave at the ESRI conference was around bird flu and, and the outbreak and how it started in maybe the, the upper northwest and it kind of made its way to other places in the U.S. Having the GIS data, what did that do for your ability to, to deal with this issue and track it and then respond? Having the portal and that form of the GIS really improved our turnaround time for producing maps for the field, for incident management, for national coordination, and um, it just really, again, improved that process around responding. And then after, <clears throat> we continue to use the, the tools to identify areas that might be at greater risk as we move forward, because low-path avian influenza, it's around all the time. So we're kind of looking for places where that's happening, and there's also a lot of poultry farming going on, so we're, we're in a better position to be prepared. Didn't the mapping give you the ability to have almost near real-time data, where at one time the map maybe would be updated every day or every other day or every week, and now you're going to have an updated map every few hours? Yeah, so in combination with some Python scripting, we were able to pull that data from our system of record and turn that around quickly and publish it to the portal. So it was there. It didn't have to be emailed back and forth to our um, responders and our planners. Let me turn to Bryson. You were looking at, from your perspective, feral swine. And you guys actually not only are using GIS, but also drones. It's a very interesting kind of dual purpose. Can you just maybe talk a little bit about your efforts and, and where is, what the role GIS plays in your ability to kind of meet your mission? GIS is huge for our agency, and it's all field-driven. So we're doing several things with drones and feral swine. One of the things we've demonstrated today was using drones or UAS to estimate feral swine densities and also to locate them because when you get to small densities it's hard to find them and they become trap aware so it's hard to remove them so finding them is essential and the other thing we're doing is we're actually estimating feral swine damage to crops 
and so we're flying fields and estimating those damages and hopefully we'll be able to get a better economic feel for the the impact these feral swine are having so that's the two major ways we're using drones in the feral swine program for wildlife services it's more than just drones it's down taking the data that the drones are capturing and, and layering on maps and then creating those layers that they can help make decisions as you said about the, the damage to crop estimates, but also the population density and whether or not there's a concern about the population. Previously, how did you do this, either A, before GIS or B, before drones? Before drones, we occasionally did it with aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft, but they're expensive and every time you get an aircraft, there is an inherent danger. And so drones, we can do a more targeted approach. And then also with our current GIS infrastructure with our portal, we can share this data. So you take some imagery of a place, you can share that data with all the managers in the area so they understand exactly what's going on in their areas and that they can then create a plan on how to manage for the feral swine and the damage being caused. As you heard Mary Jane talk about the business process improvements, is this also about business process improvements for you guys as well as the mission side? It is. Wildlife services, we're field-driven because we have a huge, most of our employees are field employees. And so when we think about how to do it, it's first how can we enable our field employees? And then it's how can we get that information back to our administrators and also make policy decisions. So it, it comes from both sides. All three different use cases here are fascinating use cases. As the investment continues, as USDA continues to look at, okay, how can we use GIS, where do you see this whole effort from a policy side going, and what are some maybe the biggest challenges you guys still face? The use cases that were shown here really do demonstrate the benefits of collaborating in a single platform. We have clearly shown that we map the same things for different purposes and don't need to do that any longer. We have also had a learning curve of intellectual knowledge of the attributes of GIS mapping by working together across the programs. We're at different levels of expertise. So that has been a, a huge benefit to the agency as a whole. At the USDA level, I do believe collaboration is very important. And clearly, APHIS, as was shown today, can utilize other web maps from the Forest Service, NRCS, and other agencies within the umbrella of USDA. So I do believe in the benefit of collaboration across the USDA platform. And as we are able to move data systems into the portal, we'll have less barriers for making the data analyzable because we've, we've released them from their, their systems and, and provided them the ability to be more analyzable. So it's hard. And there's a lot of resistance for that because there can be, there's cost associated with that. But I do believe, and they are intangible benefits at this moment, but I do believe the benefits do exceed the, the cost of conversion. That's all the time we have for today. In this segment of the show, we heard from the Agriculture Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, or APHIS, on how they're using geospatial tools for improving their mission success. My guests were Shannon Ham. The Associate Deputy Administrator for Policy and Program Development, Lisa Kennaway, the National GIS Operations Manager for Plant Protection and Quarantine, Mary Jane McCoolai, the GIS Project Coordinator, and Bryson Weber, the GIS Coordinator for Wildlife Services. I caught up with them after they spoke at the recent ESRI conference in Washington. You've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I've been your host, Jason Miller. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 